Well, here we are. It is Friday morning, uh, White Ribbon Day, the 19th day of November 2021, and it's great to have your company. Uh, now, this morning, a special in-studio guest from One Nation, Mark Latham. Good morning to you, Mark. Good morning. How nice is this in person? Hey, yeah, it's good to catch up in person. I mentioned to you off the air just a moment or two ago that the last time I saw you was I was driving up from the Illawarra from the south coast, and there you were walking along the side of the road with Alan Jones. It was during the the Picton floods, and you were obviously showing him around. It's in an old area that, that you know well. And I thought, that's Mark Latham. Oh, there's AJ. They're together, and I think Angus Taylor was there as well. Yeah, it was a phenomenal uh, flood, a real one-in-a-hundred event. They had an incredible rainstorm, and Picton's a bit of a basin. Yeah. And uh, the little creek there turned into an amazing flood event, and Alan Jones was walking up and down the street. Great credit to him that he was wanting to help the shopkeepers to make sure they got their insurance. They weren't messed around by the insurance companies, and true to his word, he took down their details, and he harassed those insurance companies until they came good and helped the shopkeepers. And today, Picton's back on its feet and, and going quite well. Yeah. So, you know, that in many respects is what public service is about. Get out there on the scene and try and help people as much as you can. All right, let's pick up on that public service. What on earth made you decide to be... Uh uh, to work in the public space. What when you were when you were growing up, when you were in your formative years, did you decide there and then that you wanted to you know work in politics or as a public servant? Probably, probably from about age fifteen or sixteen onwards, yeah. um, I thought I'd have some form of public life. I grew up in a public housing estate in Western Sydney, and I came to the realisation that uh, other parts of Sydney took for granted facilities that we didn't have. You know, basic facilities that would have given people opportunities in life so i didn't have any sophisticated political theory or hadn't gone to university at that time but i suppose i just had a gut feeling about uh, urban injustice that's probably how i summarize it i had a gut feeling that our society wasn't fair in all respects and if you could uh, dive in and do something about that that would be public service that would be hopefully a a good life and Mm. looking back you know i've been incredibly uh, fortunate to uh, be in certain positions where I could influence outcomes and in politics there are wins and defeats, there are ups and downs but you know, essentially what are we talking about now? We're talking about 45 years ago a young man with that gut feeling of urban injustice, I'm glad I acted on it. I, I, if yeah, I hadn't good. have acted on it, I would have had a totally different life and always wondered, well, what if I, what, what if I had, what if I'd tried and yeah. and tried to achieve something? So yeah, I look back with no regrets. Um, has that urban injustice changed from that early point? Uh, it's changed a bit. I mean, I grew up in Green Valley where oh, um, yeah, well. the urban injustice was was kind of about facility provision. Sure. Um, not so much in the economy. So we're, we're talking here about the mid-70s where everything changed. Australia went through a recession, went through economic restructuring, a lot of um, lost manufacturing jobs. So I think in some respects the urban injustice has deepened because while we're a public housing estate, as a young fellow, as I remember looking down the street, um, most of the dads, and they were dads then in the workforce, they had jobs. Yeah. And that was a great role model. Your role model was to think, well, I'm going to get a job, I'll work. Mm. Um, uh, for my life but now you can visit areas public housing estates where due to the loss of blue collar jobs their welfare uh, estates where a young fella looking or young woman young lady looking down the street 
uh, would see unemployment everywhere. And if unemployment becomes the role model, and unfortunately I've heard young people say, well, what are they going to do in life? They'll go on the dole like their dad and their granddad before them. Mm. Well, that leads to bigger social problems, a real disaster. So in many respects, the urban injustice has intensified in those welfare public housing estates and I've spent a good part of my time trying to fix that as best as I can because we had a big number of them in Campbelltown where I was the federal member of parliament and I'm still working on that now in the New South Wales parliament. All right, let's move uh, to uh, your becoming the uh, federal member in that neck of the woods down in the MacArthur. Um, How did that come about? Well, I was the mayor of Liverpool in in pursuing public service. I was elected to Liverpool Council in the East Mm -hmm. Ward as a humble councillor in 1987. Did a lot of door knocking, learned a lot about political campaigning and and serving people. I think it's a great grounding local council because you're literally there on the streets talking about things that directly affect people Mm -hmm. in their street, their neighbourhood, their suburb. And uh, then I became the mayor of Liverpool. It was a popular election for mayor for the first time in 1991. And I was able to win that. And when John Kerrin retired in the federal seat of Werriwa, which yep. took in the southern part of Liverpool and most of Campbelltown, uh, I got the pre-selection and won the by-election in early 94 and joined the uh, last years of the Keating government. Well, that must have been interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, it was. Paul Keating was uh, a unique character. We'll never see his like again. When you say An we'll never see his like again, what do you mean? You mean his uh, charisma, his style of politicking, uh, politicking or uh, just uh, his presence, if you like, or is it a combination of that character plus the policies that he put in place? Yeah, well, people think of Keating as a wordsmith. His use of language and his imposing style... Well, he's very good at that. ...attract uh, attention, <laughs> of course. But I, when I say we'll never see his like again, I'm thinking more about his policy analysis yep. and his level of conviction. Coming back into state parliament um, after, what, my 14-year break, one of the things I've noticed, perhaps it's a product of social media, most MPs have become very timid They're scared of a social media controversy trending on Twitter, whatever any of that means. So basically they're scared of their own shadow. Whereas Paul Keating, the ultimate conviction politician, and we still Mm. see that today, uh, had a policy analysis and a set of beliefs. So you've got to be driven by belief uh, in what you think is right, what's the, the public interest. And I've never seen anyone with such a strong burning sense of clear conviction and belief that, that drove him on, backed by those impressive uh, presentational skills to cut through. Mm. Yeah, that's a unique package. Uh, just on that, um, social media. Now, obviously, uh, I think that um, it's playing a big part, and you mentioned it as well, that the current day... Uh, public figures are jumping in shadows. They they worry, as you say, about something coming uh, becoming viral. Um, they're worried about the uh, the Twitterati uh, and the turn, if you like, against them. How much attention? Uh, how, how important is the new media, the social media, in the political discussion? Is it just a, a, a small minority involved, or you know, is can it become then a, a serious issue? Well, because it's instantaneous. I think it has a huge impact. The fact that you can put something on Twitter and 20 minutes later it's blown up as a controversy and you have the offenderati, the outrage mob, Mm. setting upon people, that instant response time as opposed to, say, the traditional 6 o'clock TV news, which only happens every 24 hours. Mm. It's the instantaneous nature of social media and, and the way in which things can be inflamed. You know, I think it acts as a straitjacket 
on politicians who become scared of saying what they really believe in, advocating for well, their convictions. Well, it hasn't convictions. stopped you. Well, it hasn't, but, but no. you know, I'm, I've, I've been around a lot longer than a 35-year-old, uh, you know, rising junior minister in a sure. government or a 45-year-old who's... Uh, a more senior minister who who has grown up politically yeah. in the world of social media, Twitter in particular, mm. and become scared of any instant reaction to what they do. So, you know, politics essentially is action and reaction. I mean, if you mm. if you haven't got a reaction to a policy or something you've said or something you believe in, mm. well, you might as well just go home and play with your dog. You know, you've got to <laughs> you, you've got to get a reaction. You're, you're not doing anything of any value or interest or worth unless there's some reaction to it. But they, if they if you're scared of the reaction on social media, well, essentially you do nothing. All right. Uh, you came within a whisker of winning the prime ministership. Um, uh, that handshake. I was actually there. I'm sorry to bring it up, but I was there. I was uh, at the uh, was working for, for 2UE at the time and for that company. And um, I remember it. Uh, they say that that was the, the handshake that, that lost you the election. I don't necessarily buy that. Uh, but what was it like in those heady days when you, you know, you came so close as, you know, to, to winning an election? Well, our polling in that campaign showed we were behind the entire time. And the handshake um, is an example of the media looking for a very simplified explanation oh, of, of complex events. Absolutely. But the thing that hurt us was the Liberals ran a, a, a negative campaign, as I see they're trying to do now, mm. to say that interest rates would always be higher under a yeah. Labor government. Interest rates were going to go up. A lot of people had some memories of the high interest rates in the early 90s, and, and it was a, a fear campaign that cut through. A lot of home buyers uh, turned against us, so we weren't able to combat that successfully. But we're also up against the Howard government. You know, it's hard to uh, believe that uh, this was once the norm in Australian politics with a big budget surplus, uh, handing out some goodies to the electorate, a uh, fairly stable economy. Hmm. There were some controversies about Iraq, but generally... Uh, Australians thought the country was headed in the right direction. And for all the talk about opinion polling and, and the like, generally, yep. Yep. if Australians think the country's headed in the right direction, it doesn't matter too much what the opposition does, they'll return the government. Yep. That's the key question behind well, the, the scenes that parties is, ask. Yeah. And Australians thought the country was headed in the right direction, which I suppose, you know, in all honesty, economically it was at that time. It, it mm. turned sour later on and, 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 the, and the economic fundamentals have, have changed a lot. So it was pretty hard to beat... John Howard in 2004, and I sometimes look back and think, geez, it would have been a lot better to run against someone like Malcolm Turnbull. <laughs> well, <laughs> I had a bit more success. Well, you know? yeah, I, I have no doubt about that. So you got out of politics for a while, but uh, you, you were never too far away from it, really. Uh, you, 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 you started writing. You're an author of, of many, many books. I've got one here. Uh, you, you wrote for, for many um, publications, um, the Australian Financial Review and others. Um, and often quite scathing critiques uh, or analysis of what was happening uh, during, the, say, the Kevin Rudd era, the Julia Gillard reign, um, you know, the, <laughs> that era and then, and then beyond. What was it like uh, working as a, a media commentator and writer during that period? Uh, well, I had a regular column in the Financial Review and also the Daily Telegraph for a yep. while, yep. Uh, a bit of TV coverage and the like. So... Uh, I suppose I was of interest to the media system because I had some things to say about where this new Rudd-Gillard government might end up. And my mm. um, belief 
from harsh experience was that the role of the factions inside the Labor Party had become quite toxic. They were a destabilising force and, uh, you know, I, I, I predicted this, I forecast this and a lot of people said, oh, the Labor Party can't be that bad. But then they saw mm. the dreadful, dreadful Rudd-Gillard period, all that destabilisation, infighting, bitterness that lingers on to this day and... Uh, they had a lot of very talented people. Does it, though? Sorry, just to pick up on that. Well, it when does you for say, Kevin Rudd. It, well, yes, true. It does true. for Kevin Rudd. What, what place do, just to digress for a moment, what place do former Prime Ministers have in, in public discourse? I mean, there's been much made of, of Kevin Rudd and, and his attack on News Corp, for instance, and him wanting a royal commission. Um, he's had a lot to say. We know Malcolm Turnbull has certainly had a lot to say in recent months regarding uh, an overseas trip by our Prime Minister and climate change. You don't hear a lot from Julia Gillard, to her credit, I believe. Um, Occasionally, John Howard will say something, and certainly Tony Abbott as well. So I guess the question is, what role do former prime ministers have to play in today's political discussion? Should we be hearing from them? Well, the first point is we've never had so many former (laughs) prime ministers after this period of instability. Yeah. And they all popped out of the system. We must, it feels like we've got half a dozen of them, which we've never had before, and in a media environment yeah. where you know the media want to soak up all these comments and, and they become part of the narrative. I think the, the best role for a former Prime Minister is probably what Paul Keating, John Howard, Tony Abbott try to do, and that is to make comments targeted at a certain issue about some constructive contribution on policy. You can disagree what Paul Keating said about China and Taiwan. Sure. But at least he's trying to guide the debate mm. to a better place as he sees it. Yep. Whereas I think uh, the, the, the negativity and bitterness of Malcolm Turnbull and mm. Kevin Rudd is more a daily narrative in Turnbull's case trying to drag down the Morrison government and in Rudd's case, uh, his uh, vendetta against Murdoch. You know, in 2004, there was no one in the Labor Party closer to the Murdoch media than Kevin Rudd. He was non-stop uh, trying to ingratiate himself to them. Mm. And the fact that he lost in 2013 election, he blames Murdoch, and he's run an eight-year campaign of revenge solely on that basis. So it's not really about Murdoch. It's about Kevin not being able to accept that he lost in 2013. He blames Murdoch and puts out three or four statements about Murdoch a day. It's a weird, weird obsession. And he should say things that are positive and trying to make a constructive contribution to the debate instead of this deeply embittered attack on a media outlet that has probably had less power now because of social media. The Murdochs have got less power than they've ever had. Uh, Were you courted, uh, if you like, by media organisations because they thought that maybe you were controversial? They were were waiting for a ripper of a yarn from the former Labor leader, Mark Latham. Uh, You know, they were were wanting you to, if you like, um, you know, create some sort of controversy that, uh, that... you know, would give publicity to an issue or would, would basically, you know, what it's like, incre- increase readership and get a story going. So what I guess... Well, the there was an element of that, but yeah, I'd like yeah. to think that uh, particularly in the publication of my diaries and the things mm-hmm. that I wrote in those newspaper columns that I was talking about problems inside the Labor Party that they had to fix. Sure. And I'm hoping that the next Labor government won't be a repeat of the last one with sub-faction after sub-faction trying to tear down leaders, mm. non-stop destabilisation, chaos, instability. So, you know, um, uh, they've got to learn from that. Um, I don't exactly know the scene inside the Federal Labor Party these days, but uh, if they repeat what they did last time, well, they won't be in government for very long. 
Well, the polling at the moment, if we let's move now to, to today, uh, we've got a federal election not too far away. It's pretty obvious we're, we're coming close uh, to being in the election cycle. I think the Prime Minister is already setting the pace for that. Anthony Albanese is certainly starting to, to, to talk it up as well. Uh, how do you see things playing out? We're either going to aim for a, an early May election or maybe they'll, uh, sorry, early March, but I suggest they'll probably wait till after the, the federal budget, maybe in May. What are you seeing happening? Well, that's what they did last time. They used yeah. the budget as a springboard for their campaign in 2019. But if there's an election tomorrow, undoubtedly there'd be uh, an Albanese Labor government uh, in, in the results in Western Australia alone. Yeah, OK. And I think uh, generally Morrison, Scott Morrison's got problems if 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 i was a political advisor to him mm. uh i'd be reflecting on the fact that he looks a bit shop worn he's had a whole bunch of um, controversies and problems which have worn him down to some extent but I, I think his biggest mistake was to go out with net zero 2050 because whether or not you agree with that policy uh, we can be guaranteed that for morrison it's come out of opinion polling rather than his own personal conviction and beliefs mm. so too for the national party and barnaby joyce and the electorate's not silly they get a sense of who's just trying to slide through with the policy for the next election as opposed to those who really believe in something yeah. and, and and will act on the basis well, of surprised. conviction. Yeah. I was surprised by the uh, the turnabout and uh, I, uh, I could see it... Um you know, you can even just see it on social media because I, I monitor as much as I can. I try and soak it all in because I'm such a, a politics nut. But I could see them turning. The Conservatives are turning. That must be, <laughs> that must be good for people like One Nation. Well, yeah, of course, we stand for jobs yep. ahead of environmental campaigns. And we're just about the only party that does that now. Job security yep. for working people is essential. There's no future for a family unless someone's in work. So that's one of our core beliefs. Uh, but Morrison, driven by polling, um, has got a lot of issues of caught, that have caught up with him. The, 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 the faulty vaccination rollout, mm. the uncertainty now about where the economy is headed, the fact that we're going to have to bring in so many overseas workers to take jobs that sh- clearly uh, in the economic recovery should be taken by Australians. We've got uh, hundreds of thousands of unemployed Australians. Why aren't they taking the jobs when we've got this labour shortage at the moment? So there's a whole bunch of problems there that Scott Morrison hasn't fixed. The is one thing the... that might save yeah. him is what I mentioned earlier on, that over Christmas, mm. if we can leave COVID behind, the economy recovers, people get back to a normal life, it may well be people think the country, again, is headed in the right direction, and yep. that is beneficial to the incumbent. I like Anthony Albanese. Um, he's a, a genuinely good bloke. Uh, he's a bloke you can have a, a chat with, a beer with, and a laugh with. Um, some people are, are critical. Everyone, I think, agrees that he's just a, a nice guy, but a lot of people are critical of, perhaps, his leadership, and uh, whether... Will he make a good leader? Is Anthony Albanese strong enough to become leader or Prime Minister of Australia? Well, he would if there was an election tomorrow. That's what the, that's what the ballot box reality would okay. show. Yep. But, yeah, you can say he's a good bloke because he knows footy. He's a great uh, South Sydney rugby league tragic. So anyone who knows footy is, is pretty grounded. Um, I think he's been a better leader of the Labor Party than Bill Shorten. Okay. Albanese hasn't gone out with radical experimental tax policies. and He's been a small target. Well, he has been a small target, but he's been around a long, long while, 25 mm. years in the federal parliament, um, yeah. uh, 15 years as a Labor official before that. Um, he's seen a lot of politics, and he knows that the Shorten formula was certain defeat, yeah. uh, losing the unlosable election. So Albanese's no fool, uh, but... 
I also think one of the issues that will be examined is that over many, many years he's been very much a creature of left-wing Labor politics and mm-hmm. Albanese is probably the most left-wing leader Labor's ever had and to some extent he's masking that uh, successfully but I think that'll come in focus in the proper election campaign. All right, um, let's come to New South Wales and, and today. Um, we've had some major changes. You and I have talked about it on this program where we went through a whole range of scandals and the ICAC hearings. And We have a, a new Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, is now gone. Uh, Dominic Perrottet is in. And I think uh, all of this disruption, if you like, within the Liberal National Party in New South Wales, the Nationals, of course, have undergone changes too with new leadership. I think that has done well for, I don't want to say fringe parties, I think that's disrespectful, but I think you know what I'm getting at. That All of this disruption to the traditional conservative right is playing into your hands, is playing into One Nation's hands. I see support shifting from traditional LNP voters toward One Nation. Well, I think a lot of Liberal voters wonder how left-wing green their party has become, particularly yeah. someone like Matt Keane. Mm-hmm. You know, things like banning plastic cups and straws for kids' birthday parties, no more dark-coloured roofs, uh, the sexual consent laws we'll be debating today, which is sort of kind of like the bedroom police. Um, yeah. A lot of uh, traditional Liberal and National Party supporters are wondering how did they become so left-wing and intrusive in our lives. And One Nation, uh, part of our role is to push back against that. Even if we lose votes heavily, at least we're putting the argument mm. that this is not the, the the best way for the parliament to, to proceed, that government has a role, of course, but it can be too big, too intrusive, um, too many freedoms and personal opportunities are lost. If government is too big, society itself starts to shrink. And that's certainly been the experience through the COVID yeah. uh, period. So we, we play that role, but also yeah. with the Labor Party as to how yep. Labor now puts the environmental issues ahead of job security. Right. Uh, and, and, and we point that out as well. So we try to be honest brokers in these debates. And mm. if traditional Labor, Liberal and National Party supporters want a more common sense, um, employment-focused, uh, economic growth approach, then they find it with New South Wales One Nation. We haven't got too long to go, but just overall, I think... Uh, we all need to admit that uh, we've been pretty uh, bipartisan in our approach to dealing with COVID, mostly, uh, and we've come out of it a lot better than many other nations around the world. Would you agree with that? That's true, but we also had big starting point advantages of being an island state. If you can't defend yourself when you're surrounded by water and you can close your borders, then there's a problem. But I I think looking back, you know, I, I said this at the time and I've maintained it since, the big mistake was to set up a national cabinet that uh, elevated the role of the premiers. And you look at Dan mm. Andrews and Mark McGowan in particular. Well, right now, yeah, yeah. Still. I mean, I mean, I mean, some of the the the, 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 the big brother government approach has graded with people, and mm. to have Melbourne as the most locked down city in the world has been a, a dreadful thing for Australia. So um, we would have been better off if Scott Morrison had said under the Constitution he can use the quarantine powers mm. and, and in, obviously look after the national, well, national borders, the interstate. Yeah, yeah, completely failed. Every state's had a different policy on mm. borders mm. and lockdown. We should have had a national approach across the board and the federal government building quarantine centres away from the major centres of population so we wouldn't have these leakages out of hotel quarantine. So in hindsight, you would have done 
those things differently, but I think sure. the National Cabinet was a mistake. All right, Mark, it's just been wonderful having you in uh, here this morning. I, I do appreciate you uh, coming face-to-face and having an extended chat with us. Uh, I, I want to do more of these kind of things as we, you know, we lead into uh, um, elections, both um, federally next year and, of course, the state election in a couple of years. How long are you going to stick around? Are you going to run again? And... Well, we've got an eight-year term in the upper house. Well, I think that's way yeah. too long. New South Wales upper house, eight years. <laughs> You know, I'd rather see a four-year term, right. but yep, uh, yep. That, that's the constitution under which we operate. So I'm elected until 2027. So Wow, uh, okay. Yeah, so sticking around, that's not a question, mate. <laughs> I've got an yes. eight-year term and, yeah, I, I, and, you know, and, and with my colleague Rod Roberts serving that out and, and doing the best we can All right. in the upper house and, and we'll be up there today having another crack. Sounds good to me. Uh, Mark, thank you again for your time and we do appreciate it. A pleasure. Great to chat.